it's not an easy story to tell and there's a lot of really gross and ugly details, but it's important for people to know that you can go from being a successful married woman with children to being a divorcee, trying to recapture some of her youth and get trapped in a horrifying nightmare for two years, but then find your way out of it and circle back. Welcome to Trauma to Triumph, where our goal is to empower, inspire, and give you the means to stand up, take control of your life while embracing your inner badass. I'm thrilled you are here and wanting to be a part of this journey. In our fourth episode, I'm honored to introduce to you my very, very special guest and dear friend, Melinda Hopper. She's mine and many other folks' everyday hero. I have to tell you that sharing stories might seem easy as you're listening to them, but honestly, it's not. I reached out to Melinda because I know her story. She's been asked to speak at many conferences to share her journey and declined. She agreed to speak with me because she knows the amount of healing that needs to happen in the world and her story will leave you with some goosebumps and tears. We had this interview scheduled a few weeks out and unbeknownst to me, it triggered her PTSD. What she did here and what she shared, we both knew would help someone else learn how to break free. I share with you this because I know how hard it is to come to grips with your own story. And I fucking know how hard it is to say it out loud. But the most important thing we can do is to share it so we can eventually diminish the power those stories have over us. You might currently be in a toxic relationship or know someone who is. This episode will have you understanding how to transition out or how to support that person that needs your help to get to a better place. Come listen to how she survived her husband and his attempt to murder her and her kids. Let's get started. I am extremely honored to have the guest that I have on today. I have Melinda Hopper, and she has been a longtime dear friend of mine and has had some of the most incredible life experiences, an incredible mother, an incredible partner, incredible colleague. I've worked with her through hell and back, and it is so amazing to be in a place where I'm no longer in the banking world, but she's in credit union, so it's a lot different. But to be able to see her at a place of complete joy and happiness, when we talk about people overcoming their traumas and working through them, there is nobody that I can speak to more of than Melinda who has taken that journey and really walked the walk and worked through it. So thank you, Melinda, for coming and sharing with us your story. Well, thank you for having me. So I know that, you know, the story starts from when you were first married, correct? Um, actually, the story originally started before I was even married. It was uh, when I was a teenager is when I met him. And then we hadn't seen each other for 15 years, and he came back as my marriage was ending. Okay. <clears throat> and help me walk through this whole, like, how you went from happy to a very different place at the end of this marriage? Um, Well, 
when he came back into my life, my marriage was ending and we were, you know, filing for divorce and it was an opportunity to recapture a little bit of youth and reconnect with somebody that I had, you know, cared for when I was a teenager. And at first things were good. There was a lot of adventures and excitement and, and then, um, violence started. And, you know, even before the violence, there was a lot of manipulation and control that I didn't detect was happening. Um, so by the time the violence started, I was already in a position where I was, um, trapped for lack of a better word. And there were a lot of tears and apologies and I'm so sorry. Um, you know, at first and, and how it would never happen again. And there was so much going on in his life that he was acting out with a person that he trusted and felt safe with, you know, the usual stories that you hear, uh, from other battered women when it starts and, um, and it escalated. And for two years, I lived in terror and every move I made, everything I did, every decision I did was about trying to be safe and keep him from being angry. Um, and you know, the injuries started to pile up. There were broken bones and bruises and lacerations. And, you know, when you have physical injuries, the scars sometimes stay, but the emotional and mental scars are really where the damage is done in these relationships. So by the time we reached the end of of the two-year run, I was very well aware that I had to get out because he was going to kill me. And it had become very clear. And I didn't know how to do that. I was so trapped with him knowing everything and watching everything and and just being so controlling that everything in my life was wrapped up in him that it was hard to have an exit plan. I'd had the police out to my house before. And, you know, I had a couple of older male, um, County King County sheriffs come to my house and they, um, accused me of lying about him. And yeah, they were, uh, more inclined to believe that nothing was going on than something was. And he had assaulted my father and was put in jail and released and came back and they didn't do anything about it. They didn't weren't pursuing charges. They weren't taking any action. He was just out free. So one night I had come home and um, it was, he was very angry and said he was not feeling well and that he kept going to the doctor and nobody would help him. And he wanted me to take him to the emergency room. And I found out that he had hurt my son. So I told him to take a shower and I said, I'm going to, um, get the kids some dinner and then I'm going to take you to the emergency room. And while he was in the shower, he took the kids outside and we hid and we called 911 and it took them 37 minutes to get to my house while he was looking for me. And they showed up and I had this wonderful um, King County Sheriff female who took me aside and she said, um, what is happening to you is wrong and tell me your story. And I promise I will help you. And I told her, And she looked at me and she said, I'm going to be in court. Are you? And I looked at her and I just broke. And I said, yes. And they took him to jail. And that was March of 2011. In June of 2013, he was sentenced to 20 years 
for uh, repeated domestic violence and um, false imprisonment and other various assault charges. I am always taken back when I hear that story because what you gave us was such like a snippet of what like went through the amount of work that it took for you to actually call the police, to have somebody not believe you, to go through the actual, you know, shit of having to hide and seeing your son being hurt. And um, the amount of, I mean, when I was working with you at another bank, just knowing that you were coming off of this situation and going through that healing process, um, there's just so much to unlock there. Um, When you first initially realized that it was that he was going to try to kill you. Like what finally made you say, this is it? Like, you know. So in December of 2010, he assaulted me pretty badly. Um, He had cut my eye and um, I had a very, very serious eye injury. He'd broken my wrist um, and caused numerous other injuries. And I knew that I had to do something, but I didn't know what to do because when I called you know, crisis hotlines, they would say things like, well, it sounds like um, maybe it might be safer to stay. Those words actually came out of domestic violence crisis line workers. Um, When people think that they're shocked, but, you know, I had one lady tell me, she says, sometimes it's, you're just better staying. It's safer. And I don't know if that was an attempt to shock me into um, realizing I had to do something or if that's genuinely what they say to people on a regular basis, but that's what was said to me. In January, I called the detective who had been working the case where he had assaulted my father and asked him, I said, where are you at with things? What are you doing? What, you know, where, when are you going to charge him? What's going on? And he said that he was working the case. I did find out later that he had stuck the file in his drawer and left it. So it wasn't until he was arrested several months later again that they pulled that file out and um, added those charges to my case. But that night in March, um, you know, every time I would come home, I was scared. I didn't know what I would walk into. Would he be in a good mood, a bad mood? How would the night end? Would he keep me up all night long? There's a lot of abuse aside from the physical that I endured so much more than we could ever go through in a, in a conversation. But when I came home and saw what was going on there, as soon as he got, as soon as he stepped in the shower, literally the minute he did a little voice inside my head said, now do it now. And I knew that that was my window. I just knew. And, um, so I grabbed the kids and we hid outside and, and called he saw them. He saw the police when he was looking for me. He had a front door again and was calling my name and saw them in the driveway. Um, and there were eight uh, sheriff cars that were there. And he shut the door and he had his phone and texted my phone. And he said, you know, what's going on? I'm gone now forever. And he barricaded himself in the house. And they had to bring in a negotiator to talk him out. And he finally did give up. But it was just, it was that voice had been silenced for so long. 
um, I am a fierce individual. Um, nobody has ever considered to be me. Um, I had become meek, but that fierce person was still there. And she knew that that was the time. And she knew that, that everything was lined up, that I was going to prosecute her, who was the head of a division who tried cases herself, agree to try that case. And that I would have people fighting for me, would be able to contact his ex-wife and his ex-girlfriends and have them come forward with their stories to make sure that he was not going to be able to hurt anybody ever again. Um, that, that voice, that was me. And I knew that that was the time. So I did it and it worked. I was lucky. It doesn't always happen that way for women or others that are victims, but it worked that way for me. What is one of the biggest things that you learned going through that process? I know that there's so much that you learned there, but like when I think about it and I think about women that go through traumatic experiences with their exes that are abusive and the amount of like breakdown that you have emotionally, mentally, spiritually, you know, physically for you, how do you even get to yourself where you're so grounded and still believe? I mean, you had so many weird, like the the crisis hotline to the cop who put the crap in his drawers um, to actually still persevere and to know that you were going to be okay. Like what gave you grounding in that time? My kids, seeing that what they were enduring, what they were witnessing, um, knowing that I didn't want them to grow up that way and I didn't want them to think that that was okay, especially my daughter. Um, they're the ones that helped me stay strong and I knew that we had to do something. I just didn't know how. I also had one friend left who was very supportive um, held up a mirror, let me see that I was strong, that I was beautiful, that I deserved better, offered to try to take care of the situation for me, but understood when I expressed the need to do it myself. If I was truly going to be free, somebody couldn't rescue me. I'm not Rapunzel. I'm not Snow White. Um, I needed to do it myself. And we had many conversations about it. And he, he knew that I needed to get there on my own. But I also knew that if anything really bad happened, that if I picked up the phone, he would be there. And so I just, I kept looking for that opportunity and I kept things as calm as I could. And then when the opportunity came, I took it. I love this person. This person isn't John, is it? Yes, it is. Okay. Well, that makes sense. It is my John. Yes. I love that the hero needed to be you. Like, wow. It had to be Kim. It had to be me. Right. Because if John had rescued me, then it would have been about John. Right. And I never would have taken back myself, my power, my soul, my right to exist in happiness. It had to be me. He was there to be a support. He was there to hold a mirror up. He was there to do those things, but he understood like so many others didn't, but he understood that it needed to be me. And I knew it needed to be me. It's just so amazing that a guy, I mean, there's so many people, there's so many men or so many women who feel like we need to be rescued. And 
And it's just so powerful and it makes complete sense why John is the person in your life. And I know that you guys were friends well after all this had happened and you guys didn't start dating until later on. But the fact that he could give you the strength, not even give you the strength, but to honor you by showing you your own strength by making you look within yourself. I mean, that's just huge. Like how many people get that right? Right. And he, he did, um, because that's the kind of person he is, you know, that came from inside of him and he knew, he knew me and he knew what I was dealing with. And he, as much as he wanted to save me, um, and offered, he respected that it needed to be me and he supported that it needed to be me because he wanted me to be free. And how could I be free if somebody came in and swooped the monster of my fairy tale out of my life? Um, I couldn't be. And maybe that works for some people, but it doesn't work for me. That's not the kind of person I am. I have to be able to fight my own battles. Life would be so different if you didn't actually do that on your own. I think it would be very different. I don't think that um, I don't think that I would be as strong and as um, through it, I guess, and on the other side as I am today. I still have a lot of of after effects. I have a lot of trauma. I have a lot of emotional and mental scars um, that come out and make life a little difficult sometimes, but I also have the tools to deal with it when it happens. And I think if I had been rescued rather than rescuing myself, um, I might not be as strong to battle through some of that. So when you went through this process, I mean, and people just don't realize like when something like this happens and if you like, and maybe some people do realize, but I would say that the majority probably doesn't understand what that process looks like. The court to getting you ready for court to the after effects, to the sentencing, like it's a lot. And for an everyday person who's raising kids, who's, you know, trying to have a career and to be able to do that with strength and grit, like kudos to you. I mean, seriously, like a pinnacle of strength. And thank you. (laughs) <laughs> and then to go through that and to like work through the healing, I mean, just that alone is, is scary in itself. And what kind of like, did you, I'm, I'm assuming that you went and worked with a therapist or a counselor or something that helped you move through this stuff. So, um, <laughs> I had a couple of friends that dragged me to the Harborview Center for, um, sexual assault and made me see a counselor. Um, the first time she took one look at me and said, I have never seen anybody in here that wants to be here as little as you do. She was floored at how um, opposed I was to this. And she, um, she was very patient with me. I'm not a lay on the couch and blame your mom for your life's problems kind of person. Uh, I am somebody that believes that you have a lot of control over your own life and the choices you make are what you deal with. But she helped me to see that that's not what this was about. This was about teaching me how to handle triggers, um, how to work through stuck points, which are those nasty things that we say to ourselves in our head, mm-hmm. and and how to walk through this journey. The journey of court is one I would never wish on anyone. Um, the amount of continuances in gameplay, 
and things that you hear is horrifying. And I saw her for a year and a half um, every week. And she diligently worked with me not to fix me, but to help me build a support for myself within myself. And um, she was a godsend. I don't know what I ever would have done without her. Um, On my last session, uh, we hugged and we both cried and, and said goodbye to one another. And I thanked her because she saved my life. I may have did the, did the hard part of getting out. And I had a lot of love and support on the other side of that, but I would have still been immersed in trauma, I think, to the day. And it's been seven and a half years, not been for her teaching me what she taught me. And I have never been a huge advocate for lots of um, therapy. I think therapy does have a, is a useful tool and I think people should use it. But again, not the whole lay on the couch and blame your mama thing. But now I understand that there are options out there that are more about it's more like an education process is what she and I went through. Yeah. I even had homework that I had to do every week. <laughs> so it was, it was an amazing experience and I am eternally grateful to her for, to this day for what she did for me. Do you feel like sometimes you need to go back and do some checkups or do you feel like your skill set is so solid and so grounded that you're pretty well equipped to do what you need to do? Um. You know, I've thought about it occasionally as I'm dealing with different things in life, the need for some additional support, but I do have, um, I haven't felt that need to be so great that I did do it. I have a lot of tools that she's given me and a lot of support that I'm able to work through it. There's some things that she taught me that I remember very clearly to this day, word for word. I still have the book that she and I created together. Um, I just, what she helped me build allows me to get through those times. And I know that for people who aren't aware of what triggers are, how does that come up for you? How do you identify a trigger? Some triggers I know, um, very well. I know that something will trigger me. So for example, um, horror films used to be my favorite genre and I would watch them all the time now. I have to think about it before I watch a horror film. I have to think about what the film is, what's it about, because I know that some films will trigger me. Same with music. Is a very big um, rock and roll heavy metal fan, and um, he was as well. And there's a lot of emotional connection to certain songs that I know will trigger me, so I know that they're not on my playlist. If they come on the radio, I know to change the channel. There are other things that you can't really control. Um, Sudden movements behind you that you catch out of the corner of your eye. Um, Sometimes they act as a trigger. Sometimes they don't. But it's hard sometimes to know. You can know when something is going to build into a trigger. um, But you don't always know when something's going to be a lightning fast trigger. So the key is knowing what will trigger you so that you are prepared to deal with it or avoid it. Um, but then also knowing how to deal with it when it happens in the moment. It's interesting because I think that I didn't really understand what triggers were until I went through the process of having, you know, being a single mother, right? Like, then I'm like, huh, what are all these, yeah. where are all these things coming from? 
And it's interesting because as you start to evolve and you start to realize like this um, emotional pain, intellectually it doesn't make sense, but emotionally it hurts, right? And like intellectually, it shouldn't make sense. And then it's that whole idea of like, okay, I'm feeling pain here, but like I get that they're allowed to do what they want to do and that's not my problem, but why does it hurt so much? Right. Or, you know, when somebody tries to do something and you're like, that's just them being them, but why is it like putting out red flags? And then you realize, oh, like I need to go make peace with that. And I don't know how to make peace with that. And I think that that's one of the biggest things that people don't realize is that um, going to therapy really shouldn't be about, you know, blaming your mama, as you say, but it should really be more or less about the tools that you were not, like nobody teaches you, hey, this is how you deal with abuse, like in (laughs) high school, right? Like, it's not like a course that you take, but, you know, like, hey, this is what you do when you get divorced. No, (laughs) like there's no course for that. And that's where like, how do you handle this stuff? And we can try to figure out the best way possible, but those are life experiences that don't really allow you to understand. Like, I mean, God tells you, like, if you go to church, church says to forgive and like to move past it, but they don't really talk about feeling it and like allowing yourself to process it. Like they don't teach you how to process it. They just say, Hey, you just got to forgive. Right. Or, you know, make peace. It's like, okay, what does that look like? And what does that look like when the, Hair on the when the hair on the back of your head stands up. Yeah. Right. It's like, okay, thanks. Like, how do I deal with this, God? <laughs> I'm just gonna go ahead and pray on this. With triggers, your physical body is still in the moment that you're in, but your emotional and mental state go back to a moment that is connected to that whatever it was that triggered you, whether it be a song or um a fast movement. And you have to pull yourself out of it. It's not, we don't have those devices like they do on Star Trek where you get transported. Your mind doesn't work that way. Your body doesn't work that way. You have to physically force yourself to realize that it's not true. It's like, it's like having a nightmare and waking up and realizing it's not real, but you still feel all the things that you felt in the nightmare. It was very real for you and you have to pull yourself out of it. It is not easy. And there are some triggers that last for a very long time. And um, then the goal doesn't necessarily become to end the trigger. It it becomes to work with the trigger and work through the trigger to the other side. Accepting it, right? Yes. And, And that was one of the hardest things that I had to do was accept that this actually for real is a part of my history. This really did happen to me. I did live this way for two years. Um... It wasn't a nightmare. It wasn't a TV show. It wasn't a movie. It wasn't a book. This really did happen to me. And it is embedded in the fabric of my life and my children's lives forever. We understand that and, um, and we know and we do what we can to work through it. My kids, thankfully, are, are tremendously resilient. And they are um, they were young enough that it's not as prominent in their memory, um, in their day-to-day lives now, which I am eternally grateful for. And I would take all of the triggers, all of the pain, all of the memories and everything and carry them all myself for them to have that peace. So the fact that I still struggle with it and they don't is okay with me. How did you handle it with your kids? Like how old were they when this happened? Um, so they were 11, 12 and 16. Um, well, 15, almost 16. 
and they, they, uh, went to therapy. Um, my oldest went to therapy on its own. The younger two went to therapy with, um, my oldest and myself and they were, there's a test that you do to determine your level of PTSD. So we all went through the testing and, um, and we worked through the results and we worked through what we needed to work through. They just, they just seemingly bounced back relatively quickly. As soon as that part of our life was done, I made it a point not to involve them in the court hearings until we got to the point to where they had to testify. Um, and really focused on making life normal and talking about what we needed to talk about when we needed to talk about it and having support systems in place for them. I went to all of their schools and met with their teachers and the principals and the school counselors and told them what had happened and what was going on um, and reached out to family and friends who uh, came back into our lives and were there to support them. So they just... If you ask them about it, they'll tell you and they have memories, but it isn't, it isn't as real for them today. It's more of a distant memory, kind of like when you think about being a kid and, you know, it's almost Halloween. So trick-or-treating when you're five, you might remember that your costume was a Care Bear or something, but you're not going to remember a lot. For the younger two, it's like that. They have some memories, but it's not, um, not as prominent for them. Wow. Kudos to you for doing all that work. Seriously, like amazing heart of gold, um, heart of gold. So with your kids and then with John, like one of the things that I absolutely love is watching that journey and watching how much it's evolved from being a friend to, I believe you found some, you are now recently engaged. Yes. Getting married. Yes. When are you guys getting married? Um, Next uh, August or September. We haven't set the final date yet. Nice. Are you excited? I am. My first marriage, um, uh, we just got married at our church in front of our pastor with our parents there. We didn't have a, we didn't have a real ceremony or a, um, a reception. So John and I are actually planning um, something to, you know, to have a ceremony and a reception. So I get that wedding, that opportunity that I didn't have before. So I'm excited. Um, we already feel married. So this is, you guys pretty much yeah, are married. You guys have been together for a really long time. We're, we're like that old married couple that you see in memes and things. But um, it's it's something. It's an opportunity to celebrate our relationship with our family and friends, and and be able to really just make that bond um, even stronger with our family and and move forward. And it's just it's exciting. It's exciting, and it's weird to be this exciting. I'm not very young anymore, and uh, you could have fooled me. <laughs> Except that you post pictures of grandbabies and I'm like, <laughs> exactly. I'm like, where did that come from? I'm like, I know exactly. I, I have so. grandchildren and, and, uh, so it's, it's something that you don't feel like a giddy bride in her twenties, but I kind of feel that way, which is weird. And I'm not overly girly. So it's interesting how, um, inter- how focused I am on flowers and colors and, and things like that. It's not going to be anything major, but it's still something that I'm invested in every detail. So it's fun. Well, I love it because it brings your girly side out and it brings you joy. And my question for you is that when all of this stuff happened, how did you find your way back to joy? Because you are definitely in love with John and vice versa. And I have to imagine that finding your way back 
was pretty difficult. It was hard. Um, it was easier than I thought it would be. Honestly, I think a lot of it had to do with um, the support system I had, the therapy that I went to, uh, the fact that John and I were friends before. So that was already established and we just needed to give me time essentially to work through what I was working through as our friendship continued to grow. And um, once I realized that I loved him and he was who I wanted to be with, I was able to do that. And I don't know how it's hard to explain um, because I still had work to do. I still went to therapy. I still did things, but there was just a moment that I knew I was all, I already knew I was safe with him. I already knew he was a pretty awesome guy, but when I knew that I loved him, there was no looking back. I just moved forward. How did you find safety in yourself after all that happened? Was it through the work that you've done? Like, were you able to, what was one of like the, the crazy things, I'm assuming when you went to therapy, there were some things that came out that were probably really surprising for you of like the way that you saw yourself or the way that you, um, yeah. What, what were some of those things? I think the biggest thing, and this probably applies to most victims of domestic violence, and I know it, it impacted a lot of the women that I have spoken to in the past, there is a lot of blame that we place on ourselves and that others place on us, especially when you have children. And it's a, how could you do that? Why would you allow that to happen? If somebody ever did that to me, I would just leave. And I remember having those same opinions. Some guy lays a hand on me, I'm walking out the door. Um, They don't understand the work that the abuser does to create an environment where you're stuck. And when I was talking to my therapist we were talking about stuck points. And like I said, those are the things that we tell ourselves. And one of those stuck points for me was that I was a bad mother. And she looked at me and she said, how can you take blame for something that he did? And I said, well, I didn't do X, Y, Z. And I could list off a thousand things. And she said, but none of that matters. He did this. You didn't do this. And it took me a while to accept that and to realize that she was right. Um, And she was, it didn't matter what I did. I didn't deserve it. And it didn't matter what I didn't do. I didn't deserve this. And it was all him. He did this. And when I read news stories about domestic violence and things like that, and I see the comments in there about people talking about she should have done this. And why didn't she do that? And, and all these women meeting these men and, and allowing their kids around them. I never would if my husband and I divorced and blah, blah, blah. It gave me a new respect for understanding that you don't know the whole story and you don't know the whole picture and judging people that way is wrong. And victim blaming has become a hot topic. And we talk about it a lot now. So you see more people defending it and saying, how can you blame the victim for something that the perpetrator did? And I think that's an important conversation. And that was probably the most important thing that came out of everything for me was recognizing I wasn't to blame, um, that it was all him. And that's so huge. Like I I feel so often that we take responsibility for more Mm -hmm. than we really should. And it's hard to not take that responsibility. Yes. Right. And it's about learning how to let go of some of that responsibility. We can't control what other people do. And, you know, It's as simple as you lock your car to keep somebody from stealing your stuff, but they can still break the window and steal it. You, as a woman, we have to think about 
walking around outside at night in the dark and not not doing that and making sure that we're safe and making sure that we're out with groups or that we don't wear the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. But even if you were dressed head to toe um, in turtleneck and long sleeves and pants, you still can be a victim. It doesn't matter what we do or say to ourselves. You still have the potential to be a victim. You cannot control what other people do. And it's about changing the conversations. Instead of teaching our daughters how not to be raped, we need to teach your sons not to rape. Instead of, instead of telling people that they should do X, Y, Z to keep themselves safe, we should be telling people that it's not okay to do those things and taking away their ability to do them. It's a conversation that I see happening. Um, it's a long time coming and we have a long ways to go, but I think that's the direction we need to go. We need to stop making it okay for people to do horrible things to other people and then blame the victim. If there was one thing that you would want people to do going through what you've gone through, call to action for anybody listening, what would that be? If you are being hurt, find somebody that you can talk to. It may be um, a domestic violence crisis line. It may not be. It may be a therapist. It may be a teacher, a friend, a colleague. It may be somebody, but find somebody that you can talk to and start looking for a way out. There are ways out. There are people that will help you as helpless as it seems, as hopeless as it seems. There are ways out. It is dangerous. It is scary. And it is hard. It is unbelievably hard. It is probably the hardest thing you will ever do. But it is worth it. And if you know someone who's being hurt, listen and love. Help them come up with a safety plan. Help them come up with an exit strategy. Don't push your agenda on them. Don't push your thoughts on them, but be there for them and be there to hold their hand. It took a lot for John to understand that I needed to do this myself. It was not easy for him, but he did it because he knew that I needed to do it. And we need to listen to people that are in these situations. Let them transition from from victim to survivor. Let them tell you what it is that they need. I had a friend that was leaving an abusive marriage um, a few years ago, and she had friends that actually unfriended her and did not want to be around her because she would not leave him in their time. And she had to craft a plan to leave. She had young children. She was a stay-at-home mom, hadn't worked in a long time. She had a lot at stake, and she planned an unbelievable exit strategy that worked. But she had people tell her because she wouldn't leave him on their terms that they couldn't be there for her. Don't be that person. As hard as it is for you to watch, you have to help them by allowing them to tell you what they need to tell you and do what they need to do. It's about them, not about you. And I think that's the most important thing I can tell anybody. And I completely agree. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for sharing your story and thank you for taking the time. It's not an easy story to tell, and there's a lot of really gross and ugly details, but it's important for people to know that you can go from being a successful married woman with children to being a divorcee, trying to recapture some of her youth and get trapped in a horrifying nightmare for two years, but then find your way out of it and circle back. I have a better career now than I had then. Um, I have much more love and joy in my life. I have more children. I have grandchildren. I have an unbelievable partner that will be by my side forever. Um, I don't know that I would be where I am today had I not had that experience. So as painful and as awful as it was, 
um, there are things I'm grateful for. Absolutely. I appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing. Oh, I'm going to go ahead and let people know that if they want to find you, they can find you in my group or Badass Women Owning Sexy. Because, I mean, if she's not a badass, I don't know who is, right? (laughs) Um, So I know that they can connect with you there if they have any questions or anything in addition to wanting to hear from you. Um, And I appreciate that. Oh, I appreciate it. And, and I am open. I can be a very good listening ear. Um, and I can provide advice that people can take or not take, but um, I'm here. So if anybody has questions, they can reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, darling. You can see why Melinda is one of my everyday heroes. She is a badass. And in case you didn't know, is now leveraging this experience to become a domestic advocate. I think her heart bleeds gold as she manages a credit union, raises children and grandchildren while going back to school with the goal to help others. Melinda isn't really out there for the public, but if you're in my private Facebook group of badass women owning sexy, you can find her there. If you want to reach out to her and need an ear, you can always leave a comment on the site and I'd be more than happy to connect you. Her message was so important to me because so many people have been hurt. Sometimes we see that as an excuse for why we don't believe in love, allow ourselves to get trigger happy without fixing things and making others responsible for the emotional damage that hasn't been and needs to be self-corrected. Her husband attempted to murder her. She didn't use it as an excuse to crawl up into a corner. She leveraged that pain to heal, be present for herself and her kids and have an understanding of herself that allows her to empower others but most importantly, herself. On top of that, she allowed herself to fall in love again. That alone is so freaking huge. I'm clearly proud and honored to call her my friend. She is a living example of resilience, beauty, and grace. Her ability to end the cycle and not wait for the knight in shining armor to show up allowed her to break the codependent triangle. And yes, the codependent triangle is a real thing. It's the unhealthy triangle of the victim, the hero, and the persecutor. Two people always playing one of the roles and it only stops when you no longer allow yourself to be one of those three for someone else. It is super normal to want a knight to save us. However, it's more important that we save ourselves. In order for us to truly break the cycle, we have to step up, take a stand and say enough is enough. When we do that, we take our power back and we can start to take that journey back to healthy living and healthy love. That's true freedom. When we've decided to take this journey, the hardest thing about breaking out of an unhealthy relationship is the addiction. Most people will look at you like it's common sense to just walk away, but it's not that easy. The fear, the safety, and the confidence that has been broken down is quite literally like having a drug addict stop doing drugs. It takes time, patience, lots of love and the willingness and the right reinforcement to get to the other side. My hope is that you found this episode helpful, but it allowed you to see that the worst of the worst case scenarios, we have the choice to fall in love, to do the right thing. And no matter what happens, when trauma rears its ugly head, there can be a rainbow on the other side. Melinda is a testament of that. Get what you want out of life and know that you can defy the odds. If you found this episode to be helpful, Please help this new girl out. Subscribe to Trauma to Triumph in iTunes and leave me a review. If you want to connect even further, come to my site, which is kimbao.co, 
K-I-M-B-A-O dot C-O, co, not com, and drop me a question or let me know what resonated. There's always room for me to improve, and I would love to hear the feedback you have and be able to connect. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you, your insight, your willingness to hear another perspective, to add to your arsenal of amazing tools you already have. Enjoy right now, and we will see you at the next episode. Much love. Thank you.